0: And turn to the Gospel of John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And we're going to focus this morning on verses 14 through 18. Let's just begin by reading uh, the entire text or John chapter 1, verse number 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And now our text for this morning, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me from his fullness. We have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. As we come to this text, we we come back again to this metaphor that that John uses of Jesus. And last week we considered what what it means when he says that Jesus is, is the word it, it is a, a metaphor that describes uh, the person of Jesus Christ and we saw that John in, in writing he's, he's drawing from uh, the Old Testament and in the Old Testament the Word of God was personified we said the, the Word of God was portrayed as the agent of God that that went out from God the Father and and went out to reveal and to accomplish God's purpose And we said that that really was rooted in Genesis chapter one, where we see God speaking all things into existence. And God said, let there be light. And so it it gives the picture right away in Genesis one of the word of God being the thing or, or the one, the agent of God that accomplishes what God says. And that that idea, the, the word gets personified and, and that gets developed all throughout the Old Testament. Over and over again, we see the word of God as if it is a person accomplishing the purpose of God, revealing God. And nowhere is that so clear as in Isaiah 55:11. That might be uh, really the key text in, in all of this. In Isaiah 55, 11, the Lord says this, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I purposed and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And so here we have this personification of the Word. It's being sent out from God, and it goes out to accomplish God's purpose. And God says, my my Word is so effective that it never comes back and says, I didn't get the job done. It, It always goes out. It's always productive. It's always effective for that which I have sent it. And now John, in his Gospel as he's reflecting on the person of Jesus Christ, and he's trying to describe who is Jesus Christ. He draws from that deep well of that personification in the Old Testament, and he says, Jesus is like the Word. That is the ideal metaphor to explain who Jesus is. He's the Word of God. He's the one who was with God in the beginning, back when God spoke everything into existence. He's the one who proceeds forth from God and is sent out to reveal God and to accomplish His purposes. But then we saw that John does a little bit of his own development as far as describing this word, he begins to define these characteristics of the word of God, and, and he goes beyond uh even what we find in the Old Testament. As the Word of God, we, we see in this passage that we've just read uh, that Jesus is coexistent and, and co-eternal. We we see that He says, in the beginning was the Word. In other words, when you go back to the beginning, there you find the Word already in existence. He's not coming into being. He's not being created. He is there as the creative agent in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. The Word already existed. He's not part of creation. He's co-existent and co-eternal with God. The Word at Jesus as the Word is co-equal with God the word he says was with God and that word with God really means uh could be translated he was face to face with God it it really means he was toward God the word was with God he was toward God he was face to face with God in other words he stands in a unique relationship of equality with the father when you go back to the beginning in Genesis 1 1 and you see God creating there you find the word there you find the son of God and he's face to face in a relationship of equality with the father he's co-existent co-eternal co-equal he's co-creator Because in verse 2 it tells us that all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. And there's a couple of really important implications there. Number one, he wasn't created. The Word, the Son of God was not himself created because he created all things. There wasn't anything made that was not made by him. And so he's not part of the created order. But secondly... We also see him doing the work of God and the Bible is absolutely clear that God is the creator. And now when it's saying that the son of God, the word of God was the one that created or all things were created through him. We find we find the word of God, the son of God being put on the same plane, uh, on the same level as God. He's doing the work of God. He's the co-creator. And then we said that one word that you probably don't hear every day. He's consubstantial. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was face-to-face with God, and everything was made through Him, and the Word was God. There's an equality with God. Uh, He he was with God. The Word was God. We said that that means that He is of the very same substance of God. He's not just another being alongside of God. No, no, no. The Word was with God and the Word was God. All that God the Father is, the Son, the Word of God is. Everything that makes God, God, Jesus, the Word, the Son of God is. So who is Jesus? Jesus is the Word, the the personal agent of God, the Father, who in every way was equal to the Father and is equal to the Father, but who is distinct from the Father in some way, and He proceeds from the Father, and He's sent out by the Father to make Him known and accomplish His purposes. That is who Jesus is. But that's not enough. This isn't enough to describe Him in that way. That doesn't exhaust everything about the Son of God. There's more that must be said if we're going to rightly define who Jesus is. When we say that He has been Sent out from the father that he goes out to do the purpose of of the father to accomplish his purpose and to reveal the father We need to understand that there's a particular way a particular mode in which he has been sent out The word did not merely come as an audible sound That's not enough. God sent out this word and, and we hear it. It's not it's not sufficient He didn't just give an audible sound He didn't come just as a a vision. God gave people visions. Remember Hebrews chapter 1? Long ago, at various times and various ways, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. And we know that he spoke in visions. He spoke in dreams sometimes. But that wasn't the way that the word of God came to reveal God and accomplish his purpose. He didn't come in a vision or a dream. He didn't come just as a purely spiritual being like an angel. God did that. Again, God spoke in various ways in various times. Sometimes he gave dreams and visions. Sometimes when we're reading the Old Testament, we see angels appearing to people and revealing God's plan. But when God sent forth his word, when God sent forth his son, he sent him in the form of a human being. The Word was sent forth to reveal God and accomplish His purposes and He did so by taking on true humanity. He came in the flesh. In the the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And now we find in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It isn't sufficient enough to say that the Word was in this unique relationship with the Father, that He's equal to the Father, that He's he, that He's the, the agent of creation. All of those things are true, but when we're trying to define who Jesus is, we find that He is the One who took on flesh. The Word became flesh. This is the doctrine that is sometimes referred to as the incarnation, and that comes from a Latin phrase that just means the, the enfleshing, right? The, the Word who is eternally existent with the Father takes on a human body, a, a hu- human being. The Word became flesh. And now there's, there's some potential for misunderstanding when we say the word became flesh and this is so important it it might seem tedious it might seem like why are we being so specific but this is this is absolutely essential It, it is important when we say the word became flesh that has the potential for misunderstanding it does not mean that he changed from what he was into something else so that he was the word He was eternal, he was equal to God, but now he's become something entirely different. no. the point that John is emphasizing when he says that the Word became flesh, he's emphasizing the fact that the Word really and truly took on humanity. We said that as the Word, He was everything that God was, He was. But now what John is showing us is that in the incarnation, everything that man is, he became without ever ceasing to be God. John was sort of pushing back on a common way of thinking in this time Uh, among philosophers and and even part of just the culture at large. There was an idea uh, in in this, this time in history that the spiritual realm was good, while the physical realm was sort of inherently evil. And so for a lot of people, the, 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 almost the goal of humanity for them What was to sort of be transported out of this physical domain it's it's evil it's wicked Uh, our bodies we need to get rid of them we have a spirit that is good but we're part of this physical existence and if we can rise above this physical existence uh, then we can be released from this sinful wicked physical realm and this way of thinking if you start to think about that If you had that mindset, you could never imagine God becoming flesh for him to become flesh would mean that God had somehow become corrupted or tainted. If if the physical realm is inherently sinful and God becomes he takes on flesh, then then God himself would be tainted by evil. And because of this, this way of thinking was so pervasive in this time, it, it influenced the way some people thought about the message of Christianity. And there were heresies that developed that taught, you know, there's no way that the Word could become flesh. There's no way that the Son of God could truly become a human being in every sense of, of what it means to be a human being. And, and so, He must not have really taken on a physical body he must have just appeared to be human that will make sense of everything god there's no way that god could could become physical that god could take on a physical body he must have just sort of been sort of an emanation he must have just appeared uh some some sort of uh uh vision or something but john in in saying this He wants to be absolutely clear that we understand when we're talking about the Word, the Son of God, He didn't just just appear to be human. He, He didn't just look like He had a body. No, the Word of God, who was one with the Father eternally and equal to the Father in every way, took on a human body so that in every way He could be truly human. John Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, says this, Wherefore then does he use the expression that Jesus became or the word became flesh? Why why does he say this? And Chrysostom says this, to stop the mouths of heretics. For since there are some who say that all the circumstances of his coming were an appearance, a piece of acting, an allegory, at once to remove beforehand their blasphemy, he has put was made, desiring to show thereby not a change of substance, not that, not that he changed into something that he, that, that, different than what he was, but the assumption of very flesh. He truly was a human being in every way, including a human physical body. And this is why John writes in his letter, 1 John chapter 4, verse 2, By this you know the Spirit of God, When you're hearing people teach, you're hearing people proclaim the the message of Christianity, John says this is how you can decipher that. This is how you can weed out who's speaking the truth and, and who is not. He says every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist. And so the point is, to say that the Son of God, without ceasing to be God in any way, he didn't cease to be coexistent or co eternal or co equal or co creator, consubstantial, yet at the same time, he added to himself a true humanity. Without ceasing to be all that God is, he became all that man is. The Word became flesh. Why, why does John use that word, flesh? It, it just sounds like, you know, flesh seems such almost like a crass word. And, and in fact, most people, many people have, have noticed that. Uh, why doesn't he say, you could say, the word became a human being or the, the, the word took on a body? Why does he use that? Well, we need to be clear, first of all, that John is not using this word flesh like the Apostle Paul uses it. When Paul uses the word flesh, He's talking about, or at least he's including, our sin nature. We know the Word of God, the Son of God, did not become a sinner. He did not take on a, a sinful nature. He was tempted in every way that as we are, yet without sin. He was the sinless Son of God. So he's not saying that the Son of God had a sin nature. What he does mean is when he uses the word flesh, he's referring to this tangible, physical body in all its weakness John wanted to show in an unquestioning way that Jesus really did become human in every way that is essential and so he uses the word flesh so that there would be no doubt and just as we apply this we we need to understand as we look to our savior then as we're going to go through the gospel of John we're going to see someone who was truly human in every way that that you are human everything that is essential to your humanity he shared in that we're going to see that that all the weaknesses that we feel all of our limitations all of our creatureliness he endured all of that because he took on a true physical body. He didn't just step in this world as as a vision uh, or, or as an angel sort of untouched by the world that we live in. No, He took on a true humanity. He he knew what it meant to be tired and to be sad, to be sick, and to be tempted. In, in chapter 4, we're going to see Jesus when He meets with the woman at the well. And it says that they, they had been on a long journey and Jesus was wearied from the journey visions don't get wearied spiritual beings angels don't get wearied but jesus the son of god the word of god who took on flesh he was wearied and he was thirsty and he comes to the woman at the well and he asked for a drink of water he asked her because he needed water he he wanted to talk to this lady He had some intention. He wanted to to reveal Himself to her. but, But He also asked her for a drink of water because the Son of God who created all things, He created all the rivers, He created all the streams, He created everything, and yet because He took on flesh, He says, I thirst. He's thirsty. Give me something to drink. In chapter 11, We see Jesus grieving. We see Him weeping. The shortest verse in all the Bible, right? As Jesus goes to Lazarus' tomb. And there He is in true humanity, weeping at at the death of His loved one. Jesus wept because He was truly a human being. He knew what it was to be cut. He knew what it was to bleed. He, He was trained as a carpenter. You can just imagine, right? Jesus Almost certainly, Jesus hit His hand. He hit His thumb with a hammer, right? He, he, he had flesh and, blo- and bones. Jesus' humanity was a true humanity. And notice what it says here. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that, that word might not mean much to you, but that word literally means where it says that He dwelt among us. It, it literally means that He pitched His tent that He, you could translate it, that He tabernacled among us. In the Old Testament times, people were nomads. The Old Testament people were nomads. And so when they went to live somewhere, uh, they could use the expression that they pitched their tent among them, right? It would be like us saying that uh, I moved into the neighborhood. That's almost akin to what this word means. And of course, that brings to our mind the Old Testament people when they came out in the Exodus and they go out into the wilderness in their wanderings and they lived in tents as nomads. And, and I think that's what he's drawing at. And, and there was a particular tent, right? Where, where God was. There was the tabernacle, as it's called, or the, the tent of meeting. And, and I think by John using this word, he, he's trying, as I told you uh, before, uh, that John often alludes to things in the Old Testament. And, and the informed reader, when you're reading the Gospel of John, you can see the clear and the plain meaning, but, but as you begin to dig in deeper in some of these things in the Gospel of John, you'll see there, oh, wait, wait a minute. He's pointing back to something. He's using this particular word to convey an idea that the informed reader will see. And, and the, the pointing what he's pointing back to in this text when he says that the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us, is that he's pointing back to the tabernacle of the Old Testament where God manifested His glorious presence to the Old Testament people. In Exodus 25, verse 8, it says, and let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And you remember that, that God gave to Moses instructions. You are to build this tent this tabernacle and that's all that tabernacle means right it's just a big tent all the people lived in tents and then God said i want you to make a tent where where it, people can meet together where they can worship me it's called the tent of meeting or the tabernacle and in exodus chapter 40 we see why this tent of meeting was so significant exodus 4032 it says when they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar They washed as the Lord had commanded Moses. And He erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar, and He set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. They've completed everything that God told them to do. And then this is what happens. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the lord filled the tabernacle here god is giving a visible representation he's saying moses i want i want you to build a tent uh, where, where the people can come and offer sacrifices. You remember the temple was not built yet. They're living out in the desert. I want there to be a tent of meeting where I will make my presence known to you, where you can come and you can worship me and, and, and God's presence, his glorious presence would be visibly evident there. And that's exactly what he does. And so the connection that John is making is that he's saying that like the tabernacle, the fleshly body of Jesus was a visible manifestation of the glorious presence of God with His people. The Word became flesh and He dwelt among God's people. He tabernacled with us here on, on earth. And this is what he says, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Well, that's the doctrine of the incarnation, but I want us to see this morning that there's sort of two results that come from that. This is what Jesus has done. This is the incarnation. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. But now there are two results. The first is this. There's something to be seen. So there's something to be seen and something to be received. Do you notice what is to be seen there? We have seen his glory. We have seen the glory of God. Now notice and just compare verses 18 and verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. But look at verse number 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The the first result of the Incarnation, Do you see this is no one's ever seen God, but now in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Word of God, this personal agent has been sent out from God and we have now seen the glory of God. No one's ever seen God. But now this Word, the Son of God who has taken on flesh and tabernacled among us, lived among us, now we have seen the glory of of God. Through the incarnation, the Word was made, has made known the unseen God. Do you want to know God? Do you want to see God? Do you want to know who He is? How can you know Him? He's a spiritual being. He dwells in the heavens. No one has ever seen God. How can you know who God is? Look to Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus Christ, God has taken on a human body and he has lived among us. And now we can see the glory of God. There's something to be seen. This is why, and I mentioned this last week, but this is such a key passage in in John 14. Philip is is questioning Jesus and the disciples are trying to wrap their mind around who is Jesus, right? And, And Philip says to him, Lord, show us the father and it's enough. We've got all kinds of questions, all kinds of uncertainty. If you would just show us the Father, it would answer all of our questions. We would be able to believe and and all of this would be over. And Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Because the Word is equal Because He is in every way all that God is, when He took on flesh and He lived among us, now when you see Jesus Christ, when you look to Christ in His Word, you see God. You see the Father. And this is what He says, we have seen His glory. We've seen glory as of the only begotten Son from the Father. Do you hear that? This glory that we're looking at, it's the glory of the son, but it's the glory from the father, right? Because the son is one with the father and proceeds from him. When we see the glory of the son, we're actually beholding the glory of God. This is why that passage in Hebrews chapter 1 is is so crucial. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 He says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He gave visions. He gave dreams. He spoke in all kinds of different ways. But in this last epoch of time, he has spoken to us in a singular way. And that way is through his son. And God has said all that he needs to say in His Son, Jesus Christ. It's a a full and a complete revelation. Everything that you need to know, Jesus has revealed. But notice what He says. He's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. There again, these same themes are coming up through the writer of Hebrews. Notice what He says here now, in verse number 3 of Hebrews chapter 1. He is the radiance of the glory of god and the exact imprint of his nature y'all know what radiance is something like radiant heat you understand what that means it means it emanates from the source if you have radiant heat you have something that's really hot and it emanates out from the source and he's saying that's what jesus is god has spoken to us through his son jesus christ and he is the radiance of the glory of God. It's God's glory. It's, it's His glory. And the Son, because He is one with the Father, when He comes forth and He's sent out and He takes on flesh, we see glory, but it's the glory that radiates from God Himself. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only begotten Son from the Father. What is Glory. Well, the, the word in the Old Testament just means something that's weighty or, or heavy. The, the idea is that it's something that's awe-inspiring. Have, have you ever said, you know, this was a really weighty moment? Maybe you've been to a, a wedding or the birth of a child or graduation or, or some, something really unique and you can just sense That there's something unique about what is happening. Maybe maybe it's when you see the Grand Canyon or you see some natural wonder and it just kind of inspires awe. It takes your breath away. It it leaves you speechless. This this is heavy. This is weighty. That's what glory is. And what we see is that God is supremely glorious. When we see in, in, in the Bible anybody having any kind of encounter with God... They are, over, they are awestruck. They are overwhelmed by His glory. It's, it's so wonderful. It is so awesome. God is so awesome that, that even just His speaking or even just Him sending one of His angels out, it leaves people awestruck. There's another instance in the Old Testament that I think that John is alluding to here. And, and that is when, when Moses pleads with the Lord Uh, Lord, let me see Your glory. Moses wants to see the glory of God. And this is in Exodus 33, verse 18. Moses said, please show me Your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before You. And I will proclaim before You the name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face For man shall not see Me and live. Moses, it's too much for you. My glory would overwhelm you if I was to reveal Myself in a sort of an unfettered way. It would overwhelm you and you would die. You cannot see My face. And the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by Me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by i will put you in the cleft of the rock and i will cover you with my hand until i have passed by and then i will take away my hand and you shall see my back but my face you shall not see now that's a strange passage and when we read that, that that almost doesn't make sense to us clearly God is speaking sort of in an anthropomorphic way that we can understand. That that just means that that God is speaking as if he's a human being. And he's saying, I'm not going to show you my my front, but I'm going to pass by. I'm going to put my hand over you. And after I pass by, you'll kind of get the afterburner of my glory. But you can't see me face to face. Of course, God doesn't have a physical body. Uh, there, There are all kinds of he's clearly speaking in a way that Moses can understand. But the point that he's making is simply this. Moses You cannot handle the full revelation of seeing me in all my glory. You you simply cannot experience that and live. And so I'll give you a little sort of uh, mediated version of it. I'll give you a, a little taste of it so that you can experience. God is so great. And so awesome that in our human condition, we could never see His glory in an unfiltered way. And that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. The Word who in every way is is all that God is. All the glory of God belongs to God the Son. but, But He comes taking flesh in a human form. He has in a sense veiled the glory of God in a way that our frail, sinful human selves could see the glory of God. This is what John is talking about. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. The glory is of the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that's the question we might ask here is what is so glorious? What is it particularly about God and about the Word, the Son of God? What is it that, that is so glorious about Him? Well, is it His being? Uh, yeah, there, there's one God and three persons that our minds can't comprehend that. Perhaps it's the, the being of God that is so glorious. Perse- perhaps it's His holiness. We know when Isaiah gets some sort of vision of the Lord in, uh, in Isaiah chapter 6, uh, he sees the holiness of God and it's a revelation that God gives to him and, and Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm, I'm lost and undone. Right? Is it the holiness of God that John is referring to here? This glory that we've seen? Is it the righteousness and justice of God? Well, when we look to the text, the thing that is highlighted here is grace and truth the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth what is it that jesus reveals it is the grace and the truth of god what what does he mean by these words and we could just look at the dictionary definition of what is grace and and what is truth Uh, but but it seems best if we understood it in light of What I think is is the context. You know, words have a whole range of meaning, and the best way to know what a word means in a particular place is to understand the context of of where this is being said. And D.A. Carson says that John is almost certainly directing his readers to that passage that we read in Exodus 33 and 34 when when he says, Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. and, And he gets some vision of God. What is it that Moses sees? When, when God reveals this glory, because whatever that is, is likely what he's talking about that we see in the Son, the word who has taken on flesh and re- revealed uh, this grace and truth. So let's read Exodus 34 again. And it says this. This is the context for these words, I think. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord. Passed by, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Do you hear those two words? God reveals himself to Moses, and, and what is proclaimed? as the Lord passes by and Moses gets this little glimpse of the glory of God, what is it that is proclaimed that Moses is seeing? Well, it's the fact that God is gracious and slow to anger and that he is abounding. He's overflowing in steadfast love and faithfulness. And I think when John says this, that we've seen the glory of the Son who is full of grace and truth. These these are two words that I think he's pointing back to this text. He's pointing back to the steadfast love and faithfulness of God. So, what is this glory of God that has been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ? It's God's steadfast love to his people. And that's what that word means it's it's God's loyal, never ending love, His, his faithfulness to his promises. And to His people. That's what this glory is. And that's what we see when we look to Jesus. When we go through the Gospel of John, what is it that God's going to be revealing to us? What what are we going to see? Uh, There are certainly many things that we could answer that. But the foremost thing that we're seeing in the the Gospel of John, when we look to the Savior who is revealed in the pages of the Gospel of John, the thing that we're seeing up front and, and, and sort of on display is the steadfast love and faithfulness of God it is God's grace and his mercy being revealed to his people as we go through John then we should be wowed we we should be in awe of God's grace and his faithfulness to his people and that that's exactly what's being revealed how how faithful is God to his people How, how much grace does God really have And then we look to John and we look to the Gospel and we look to what Jesus does as He lays down His life for His sheep. As we see the love of God that is so great for the world that He would be willing to give His only begotten Son so that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. That should wow us as we go through the Gospel of John. That is a glorious thing. It should take your breath away. It it, it is a heavy, glorious thing that God would display His grace, His faithfulness in such a way. There's something to be seen, but there's something to be received as well. There's something to be received. Compare verse 14 and verse 16. He says in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's full of it. It's, it's abounding. That's again, I think that's one of those indicators that he's pointing back to that text in, in Exodus 34, because this is, this is something that's abounding. It's, it's overflowing. He's full of grace and truth. But now look at verse number 16, "For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. What is God full of? He's full of grace and faithfulness he's full of steadfast love mercy and faithfulness for his people and now we as God's people we have all received from that fullness the picture is is as if God is just overflowing it's just grace and mercy is just spilling out from who he is and we're all recipients of that grace what a glorious thing there's something to be seen but there's something to be received we have all received Grace upon grace. Just listen to that, that word, grace upon grace. Isn't that a great expression? Literally, it, it means grace in the place of grace. And, and I read, and I think one of the best illustrations that, that I could think of, especially some of you who maybe have been to the beach recently, uh, you, you just go out in the waves. I know when we were there this summer, uh, and, and sometimes the waves are really low, but there was a particular day where there was a storm out in the Gulf, and, and there were just big waves. And I mean, we probably spent three hours just out there. It's so fun, I'm like a kid, and I know my kids enjoyed it, but I enjoyed it too. You just run out, and there's a big wave, and it hits you and knocks you back. And then you just run again, and it hits you again. Wave after wave. They never stop coming, do they? They, they just keep they, they keep coming, it keeps crashing in. And that's kind of what is being explained here. Grace in the place of grace. We've all received this this fullness, this this grace, this mercy that is overflowing from God. But it just keeps coming. We have received grace upon grace. You know, sometimes we use that picture of of waves crashing in to talk about adversity and and trials. You know, one wave of, of adversity after another. One piece of bad news after another. One trial after another. One temptation after another. And and that can be the way that our lives feel, but what we need to understand from this text is that no matter how often you think those waves might overwhelm you, you should know that they will never exhaust the grace of of God because His grace just keeps coming. The grace that we have in Jesus Christ is just grace upon grace. Grace in the place of grace. It reminds me, Jared read from Lamentations earlier and no you didn't, did you? But I'm going to read from Lamentations now. Lamentations 3.22 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. That's that same word. The steadfast love has said. The, the loving kindness, the mercy of the Lord is translated different ways, but steadfast love is a good translation of it. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. What a wonderful thing to think about God's grace in Jesus Christ. God has revealed himself. And, and what is it that we see? We see that God is full in, in Jesus Christ. We see that God is full of grace and truth. And it just keeps coming wave after wave after wave of God's grace. This is especially in true, true or important, not only in light of our trials that we go through sometimes, but even in light of our sin. You notice what he says here? The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We, we just did that series on the law, didn't we? And we talked about how the law condemns us. Even as believers, the law continues to expose our sin. When we compare ourselves to what God expects of us, we just keep getting the light shined on our sin. Every single day, day after day, we, we see more of our sin. There I am again. There I have fallen again. There, there I have stumbled again. There I have fallen short again of what God demands of me but what we need to see that though the law came through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Our sin in this life is going to ever continue, but the grace of God will never run dry. There is grace in the place of grace. And we thank the Lord for His mercy that we have seen in Jesus Christ. We have seen that glory revealed to us through His Son, Jesus Christ, who is the Word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to You this morning. And God, we thank You that You've revealed Yourself to us. We know that we could never see You in, in all of Your glory. But Lord, You have, in a sense, veiled that glory in, in the body and in the person of Your Son, Jesus Christ, and, in His true humanity. He has revealed a glimpse of your glory that, that we can see, that we can digest, that we can know, and that we can experience. No one has ever seen you, but, but we have seen your glory in your Son, Jesus Christ. And as we see that glory, we, we thank you that the thing that stands out is your grace and mercy to your people. Thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who was willing to lay down His life for His sheep so that we can have wave after wave of your grace and mercy. I pray this morning, Lord, for someone who is here that, that may perhaps not have experienced that grace. I pray that they would see your son, Jesus Christ, and that they would get a taste of that glory this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.